Good morning, Pacific Hope Church family. I love this church family and how we're actively engaged in the preaching of God's word. How throughout the week, I'll hear from some of you that are excited as you're preparing and as you're revisiting what God has taught you through the preaching of his word. If you're new to Pacific Hope this morning, I want to tell you a little bit about what to expect as we approach God's word. If you were here last week, I also want to give you a little bit of a heads up on what to expect from God's word. We preach God's word expositionally, whereas a body of believers moving through the, the book of Malachi, we're preaching in various sections so that we would understand God and his covenant-keeping, faithful love to unfaithful people. As we approach this morning's text, one of the brothers mentioned to me that I seem to have forgotten the last verse of chapter 2 last week, which is not the case. The observation was also that an entire sermon could be preached on that one verse, and while that is true, to set your expectation, we will not be doing that this morning. We'll make our way through, through verse 5 of chapter 3 today. Another commentary was, this is the first Sunday of Advent. Aren't we going to take a break from the book of Malachi and do an Advent message? And the answer is yes and no. We're not going to take a break from Malachi, but we are going to get an Advent message. And not just one, but today we'll get two Advent messages in one. And you'll see what I mean as, as God in his grace allows us to understand this precious text that lays before us this morning. I'd like to invite you to stand if you would, if you're able. We'll read from the last verse of Malachi chapter 2 through verse 5 of chapter 3. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Please remain standing as we pray and ask the Lord to help us with this passage. Father God, we come into your presence and we ask that your Holy Spirit would allow us to understand your, your holy word, your word which explains to us your advent, you're drawing near to us. Might we pay attention to, to that which you wish for us to understand about who you are and your plan for your people. 
Would you quiet our hearts and enable our minds to understand what it is that you want to speak to us through your holy word? We thank you and praise you for the privilege and the opportunity to, to be together this morning and draw near to you and to your word. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we've established, some of you might have the bookmarks and, and know that we're moving through a prophetic book that reads a bit like a set of legal allegations, charges by a holy God against his sinful people. And this morning, we'll briefly touch on verse 17 of Malachi chapter 2, and we'll see two allegations. In fact, for the note takers this morning, there's going to be a lot of twos, okay? We're going to have two accusations. We're going to see in this text God presenting to us two messengers. And then he's going to show us through prophetic prophecy two advents. So those two things we want to move through, again, are two accusations, two messengers, and two advents. So by way of of introducing this last verse of of chapter 2, we see that, that God has an objection with his people because he's tired of the things that they're repeatedly saying to him. And look at the comments that are made to God. Verse 17 of Malachi chapter 2. He says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. That's the first thing that is said that, that is burdensome to God. It is said that everyone who is doing what is evil, it's actually right, it's actually okay with the Lord. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, explains this well. The prophet Isaiah, speaking again to God's people, says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Everything's flipped upside down. Everything that is in God's laws and God's statue has been corrupted. Instead of it being immoral and offensive to God, the human heart, since Adam, has come up with amazing ways of turning it around and making it right. If I can be honest for just a minute, we'd all like to have that be this morning's sermon because we can talk about all the problems in our country. We can talk about all the problems in those other churches. But if we look at what the text says, who's saying this? The book of Malachi is written to God's covenant people. It's written to his priests. And does God say, look at it, verse 17 again. Does he say that they say? No, he says, you say. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. So rather than preaching the entire sermon on this message, I'm going to give you this one as homework for this week. Take it home. Look at your own heart. How capable are you in the depths of your own heart to take what God has explicitly said is wrong and justify it and come away with, a, with an attitude of saying, yeah, this is okay. That's what we do. And that's why we're in need of God's grace. The second accusation that is found in verse 17 here is the opposite response. The opposite response is, this is an and and an or statement, right? Look again, it says, or the other thing that you do to wear out the Lord and to, to be a burden to him is by asking, where 
is the God of justice. Again, being just a bit honest here, we have a, a bit of an affinity in our own hearts to love to talk about eschatology. And, and, and why is that? Because we want the righteous, holy judge to show up and fix it. We want him to, to set it all right so that the evildoers and those who call what is wrong right, to set all that right. But this morning, what we'll see is that God's response is to turn and remind us that he's coming, that he, he has come and that he's coming again and that our response ought to be examine our hearts. And so, verse 1 of chapter 3, God diverts his attention from the complaints that he has with his people, and he unfolds an incredible response. And this incredible response this morning requires us to be a bit diligent in understanding what's happening in the book of Malachi. You see, there's a reason minor prophets aren't preached that often, and that's because they are not easy. As we've gone through this, it's been a heavy text pointing to our sin. But yet throughout the entire thing, God points to his mercy and he points to his judgment. Both are equally true. Particularly difficult in this week's text is that we have to look at and understand predictive prophecy. What God is going to say as he begins his rebuttal to how he's tired of his peoples asking these questions is to point them to the future. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 48. I want to spend just a minute or two giving us a quick primer on prophetic prophecy. This is a challenge for us. We need to understand what's happening. First of all, Isaiah 48, verse 3. God tells us that he uses his messengers to deliver prophetic prophecy, something that is going to transpire. Why does he do this? Verse 3 of Isaiah 48 says, The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth, and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, and that your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you say, My idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. Isn't that remarkable? God is saying, I'm going to tell you in advance what's going to happen because you're a little slow on the uptake. You're a little bit dense, right? He says, you're obstinate. Your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead is brass, and so I declared them to you before they came to pass. That way, when God faithfully acts, when God faithfully fulfills his, his promises, he can say that which he can rightly say, and that is, I told you so. He can faithfully lay out all of his promises coming to pass. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah 48. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known, things created now not long ago, before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, and you have never known, from of old your ear has not been opened." And this chapter lays out for us some principles of prophetic prophecy. That is, God tells us in the past so that when it comes to pass, he proves himself faithful. There's another thing that you should know about 
prophetic prophecy, and that is if you look throughout Scripture, it has typically two main messages. One is that His mercy is about to be shown. There's going to be a redemption. There's going to be a renewal, a restoration, a revival. Or, on the other hand, that His justice and His judgment are going to come. But God is gracious, and always his message of mercy precedes that of judgment. There is always warning. And that's what we find in Malachi chapter 3 today. We find two messages of future events that are going to come. For those of you who are young people that do copious note-taking, and sometimes a little bit of doodling here and there, I want you to understand that with predictive prophecy, it's often as though God will use one of his messengers to point to a near-term or a nearer-term event, which would be like a mountain. You might choose to, to draw a mountain. And beyond that mountain, there's yet another. Our perspective doesn't allow us to see past the first one to the second one, but they're both there. Prophetic prophecy is like that. There's one thing that is the more immediate fulfillment, and then there's the longer-term fulfillment. And we'll see that this morning as we unpack together this precious text. Malachi, God's messenger, is now going to give us a prophetic message pointing to two other messengers. This is starting to get confusing, right? We've got a messenger talking about two other messengers, so let's go through this slowly and understand what God wants to tell us about what is to come. Malachi 3, verse 1. He says, Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. What precious words. That word behold, that's a, a kingly word. That is a word that is saying there is something happening that is majestic. Something happening that indicates that God is speaking with authority. Behold. And he says with prophetic accuracy that he is going to send his messenger now, that same messenger is, is one that we know of from Isaiah, chapter 40, that Brother Mark read for us this morning, a voice crying in the wilderness. That same messenger that Isaiah talked about 300 and something years before, now Malachi is talking about this other messenger again too. I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. If you look to the last verse of Malachi, chapter 4. There's another verse there that's going to help us interpret just a little bit what this prophetic prophecy is all about. This last verse helps us understand the identity of this, this would-be messenger. He says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." You see, this verse is describing a messenger who would come. The spirit of Elijah the prophet, and he would prepare a way. And that's what we read about in Luke chapter 1. As we move through Luke chapter 1, and we understand that God came and he spoke to a Levite, a Levite, Zechariah. His wife was also from that priestly line, and he goes in to do his priestly duties and offer incense before the Lord, and an angel shows up and says, hey, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. 
And, and this son is going to come? Turn with me, if you would, to, to Luke chapter 1. We read it together, but look carefully at the precision with which God faithfully fulfills his promise. Let's begin at verse 13 of chapter 1. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you shall have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And if you would turn over just a couple of pages, same chapter, Luke chapter 1, verse 76. This is now after the prophecy has been faithfully fulfilled. Zechariah gets that news. He's going to have a son named John. His wife is up in years. He doesn't believe God. God strikes him mute. A game of divine jinx you, right? And he doesn't allow him to speak until after his child is born. His child's born. And the first thing that he tells the onlookers is his name is John. And it came to pass just like the angel of the Lord had said. And as Zechariah is supernaturally given the ability to speak again, he prays before the Lord, filled with, as verse 67 says, with the Holy Spirit. We won't read his entire prayer today, but, but look at verse 76. Speaking of John, this messenger, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Isn't that incredible? This is the forerunner of, of the God-man, the forerunner, the forerunner of Christ Jesus. He came just as it was promised. Now, one thing we should know about prophetic prophecy is that oftentimes in our, in our flesh, in our humanness, we can take prophetic prophecy and we can fail to understand it through the lens of the cross, through the lens of Jesus Christ, and if we interpret it wrongly, we end up with heresy. That last verse of, second to last verse of Malachi is one of those examples because it talks about Elijah coming. And the Jewish people in Jesus' day understood that last passage of Malachi, right before those 400 years of divine silence where they heard from no prophetic messengers, and they got all excited, and they're like, Elijah's going to come back. So I have to just tell you a couple things about Elijah so that we remember. Remember that Elijah didn't die? Remember that he was carried off into a chariot of fire? And so the people of Israel just got their head wrapped around this thing all wrong, and they weren't looking for... John the Baptist. They weren't looking for a guy out in the wilderness with a coat of hair, eating locusts and honey, and talking about Jesus. They were waiting for Elijah. And throughout Christ's ministry, 
they kept looking for Elijah. Consider, if you will, even for a moment, when Christ was crucified and he cried out, Father, you've forsaken me. What did the Jewish people say? Oh, he's asking for Elijah to come. No, this is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about John the Baptist. So, doing what we do when we try to understand difficult prophecies, we look for reliable commentaries, right? Love to look for reliable commentaries. So I wanted to understand with, from a reliable commentary writer's perspective, what does it mean that John the Baptist was the Elijah to come? If we look at John chapter 1, they sent to John the Baptist and they said, hey, are you the prophet? No. They asked John the Baptist, are you the Elijah that was to come? And he said, no. So this is pretty confusing, right? One is coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah to make a way for the Lord. And John the Baptist doesn't understand that what was being pointed to was a type, was a figure. So I found a reliable commentary. Thankfully, you all have it with you as well. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 11, we have an incredible commentator, the author of this entire predictive prophecy, the author of this entire story of redemptive history laid out for us. I'm going to begin reading for you at at verse 1 of chapter 11. Matthew 11, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, in Malachi, parentheses added, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the law and the prophets prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. That commentary by the God-man himself helps us understand that indeed God is faithful to keep his word. Born to a a priest and his barren wife, John the Baptist comes and announces, behold, the son, of, the son of God who takes away the sins of his people. But enough about John the Baptist. We know that's how John the Baptist would want it, right? Enough about me. I must decrease so that he must increase. This advent of, of John the Baptist as a messenger is only one small piece of what God had laid out. Let's return if if we would to Malachi chapter 3. We understand now, 
as new covenant believers, that this messenger has come, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. But there's another who has come, and the Lord, continuing at verse 1 of chapter 3, and the Lord, whom you seek, will come suddenly to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. There's so much in this verse. First of all, there's a little bit of sarcasm. I love sarcasm. It's a spiritual gift. It's, it's, it's an incredible way of understanding an important reality. Look at the word that's used there. He says, a messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Okay? We just saw the word delight back in verse 17 of chapter 2, and it was delight in the sense of, you know what? God delights in the wrongdoing. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. So God, through his messenger, uses the same word, and he's like, this is the one that you're looking forward to having him come. You're the ones that are saying, oh, come Lord Jesus, right? But there's danger in his imminent return. And that's why we need to understand these two advents. The first advent, he's coming. And, and if we understand this, he says, the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Remember the indictment that goes through this section of Malachi? It's a lack of fear. It's a lack of reverence. It's a flippancy. So when we say, come Lord God, we're gonna delight in that. No, he's going to come holy. And he's going to come purifying. And he's going to come set apart. Exacting justice. But again, prophetic prophecy points to two advents. If we wrote those, those two mountains in our doodling there, I want you to have on the, the top of that first mountain the cross. See, his first advent, his first coming, is about his mercy. And then that second hill that second advent that we'll see together as we move through this text is his judgment, is his justice. First advent is about mercy. The second advent is about justice. In your outlines, you might understand that the verses 3 and 4 point to that, that first advent, and verse 5 points to the second Mercy first, and then justice. So let's think about this as, as God it promises that the Lord will come suddenly into his temple. Let's think about his, his advent of mercy. Let's go back to Luke. We've already been in Luke 1. Why not go to Luke 2? Incredible texts as we begin Advent together. We find that in verse 22 of Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph, the, the earthly caregivers for the God-man, bring the child Jesus suddenly into the temple in a most unexpected way. Without the, the trumpet sounding and without a, a great deal of fanfare, they bring in Jesus. And let's look at this account together, beginning at verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who opens 
who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is in the law of the Lord, a pair of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple when, when, the, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." You see that? God's divine, I told you so, God's divine promise of prophetic occurrences take place. A righteous and devout old man receives in his arms the Christ child and he blesses God and he says, my eyes have seen what you've promised. Here it is. The messenger of the covenant came suddenly into his temple. If we move on through the story of, of the God-man in his earthly ministry. We know that he came into the temple another time. And when he came in, he saw the tables of the money changers, those who were selling unacceptable offerings. And in his move to purify, in his move to rightly explain what it is that God wants, he tosses the temple tables. He throws them out. And his disciples understood later what was said, zeal for my house will consume. And you know what Jesus said right after that? He goes in and he does his own version of a prophetic prophecy. He says, you know what? I'm going to tear down this temple and in three days, build it up again. That's the, that's the first advent. Christ would come. He would come incognito. He would come as a defenseless child, taking on human flesh. And then he would come and he would explain that his function was to lay down his own life. As he speaks of that temple, he was talking of his own life. How he would lay it down willingly, obediently, and finally. And then he, he promises that that temple would be built up again, and the people didn't understand that. It took 46 years to build this thing. How are you going to build it back up in three days? They didn't understand until later what Jesus was pointing to. He was pointing to what would be finished through his advent of mercy. He would come, offer himself as a sacrifice once and for all for the forgiveness of sins. And that's what Malachi is explaining back in chapter 3. He's going to talk about this, this mission of purifying for himself a new covenant people. Look at verse 2 of Malachi chapter 3. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. A refiner's fire, an incredible amount of heat 
that burns away all that is dross, all that is impure, to leave that which is priceless, that which is precious. Indeed, a a painful process. For those of us who have come to know Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we understand that along with that comes his sanctifying fire, comes trial, comes suffering, comes tribulation, comes hardship, some of which are self-inflicted, but for the purpose of burning us clean. Throughout Scripture, the analogy of what a refining fire does is evident as he's come near to his people and he brings his people in our unholiness into his presence, that unholiness has to go away. He has to refine us. Refining fire. And then it talks about a fuller soap. A fuller soap is, is described as like a lie, very acidic, very caustic to the touch. And it would be used to bleach fabric. You could take a a stained fabric or a colored fabric and you could apply this soap to it, the soap that would even hurt your hands to touch it and bleach it clean. And throughout Scripture, don't we know that time and time again, Christ's offer is to wash us in his blood, is to wash us like like a fuller with his soap so that we would be made spotless, blameless, so that at his second advent, his advent of justice, we would be found in Christ. Verse 3 of Malachi chapter 3 describes further, he says, He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. See, Christ, the one who who came suddenly, who came in his advent of mercy, came for the purpose of offering forgiveness, of offering cleansing, and would make a way for us once and for all to draw near to God. Christ himself, as we understand from the book of Hebrews, would become that acceptable sacrifice once and for all. Not like a priest who have to go in year after year, He'd go in once and for all, himself being the sacrifice laid down for the sins of his people, making a way so that our sacrifice of thanksgiving could be presented to Christ Jesus, to the Father through Christ Jesus. All of these these prophecies that are spoken of here that talk about how the, the sons of Levi, that priesthood, would be refined like gold and silver. We know from our reading of 1 Peter a text we go to often, that we have been made a royal priesthood. We are priests unto our God because of what has been done through this first advent, through the advent of of Christ in his mercy. But verse 5 points to that second mountain. It points to that, that second mountain, which is the advent that is yet to come. You see, we understand as New Covenant believers that that first advent has come. It, it came upon a midnight clear, right? We can, we can sing of it with joy. But a second advent is going to come with a trump that will resound. It won't be easy to miss. In fact, it'll be impossible to ignore. 
That second advent is what we wait for. But we wait for it. Fear. Look at verse 5. The promise of, of what the second advent will come and, and bring about. Malachi says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This list of things that that God is going to punish might seem a little tricky to us. I'm not going to go through all of these, but I want to call out a couple. One is, first of all, The swift witness. This is the second time in the book of Malachi that we see God acting as a witness. His witness against the the sins of people, sufficient for our indictment. There is no trial by jury. There's only trial by the one and holy judge. And he alone is the witness. And he goes through these lists of of sins, and some of them seem kind of hard to, to work with. One of them is a swift witness against the sorcerers. Are we supposed to get rid of our Harry Potter books? My aspiring theologian friend mentioned to me that the uh, word sorcerer comes from a word like pharmakeia. It's like that which is um, someone who is using drugs to get some sort of spiritual enlightenment, right? So we might not see sorcery in our day, but do we see people that use substances to get some sort of enlightenment? Yeah, all around us, right? But we could pass that one and say, okay, I'm good, not a sorcerer. We could move on to the next one, and then we run into adulterers. Maybe, unscathed, maybe not. Move through. Against those who swear falsely. Anybody lied in here? I think we're all indicted. Against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, against the fatherless and the widow, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. Listen, this list, just like when we find the lists in Paul's letters, isn't meant to be an inclusive list of every single sin. This is a a cross-section of the law. This is a cross-section of all that God has said, this is unholy, don't do this. And this statement isn't made to be a checklist and see if we made it off the list unscathed, okay? This checklist is made to help us understand that we are guilty of breaking the law, all of us. That's why the question back in verse 217, by asking, where is the God of justice, is a silly question to ask. If we fought for our rights, we'd be in hell tonight. See, the question that we often want to ask when we're looking at the world around us and we're looking at the sin of everybody else is, what are you waiting for, Lord? The better question is, what are you waiting for, sinner? Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, if you would. A text we know well, but explains precisely that attitude that prevails in our hearts and that Scripture helps us understand. Let's begin at 2 Peter chapter 3. start at the first verse. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, like Malachi, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. 
knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that had then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. I'm going to stop there for just a minute because you'll notice that in both portions of what we see in in Malachi's text, we have extreme heat. We have an extreme heat to purify and to make holy, and we have a heat that destroys. Thinking, what kind of Advent message is this? It sounds a lot like a turn and a burn message. God's word, because he is merciful, is full of opportunities to turn and not to burn. That is God's heart. That is God's desire. Look at verse 8 of 2 Peter chapter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promises, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Don't miss that, verse 9. If it's not underlined in your Bibles yet, underline it. Underline it. The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. As we unpack this text and we understand the two advents, know that it is the heart of God to offer you mercy through that first advent of Jesus Christ, through the cross, through what he has done for us, that we might turn and be saved. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 1 as we conclude and and look again at at the options that we have as we understand that God promised his first advent and he came and he died and he rose again and he sits at the right hand of God, but he also promises that he's coming again. In Mark chapter 1, we see that John the Baptist has a, a message that he delivers with his, with his baptisms. He goes through and it says that he's baptizing with water and that there's one who's coming who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And his baptism is one. In verse 4 it says, proclaiming a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. There it is, the forerunner. But look at verse 14 of chapter 1. This is the essence of the first advent. 
Jesus. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Isn't that remarkable? It's referred to as the gospel of God. The God-man promised the plan from eternity past would come in human form and give us the opportunity to repent and to believe in the gospel. If you're here today and you haven't given your life to, to Jesus Christ, you haven't understood that mercy and forgiveness are available, do it now. Do it now. Repent and believe in the gospel. Because Christ promises that there will be a second advent. John chapter 12, verse 48. Jesus lovingly urges and warns us of what is to come. John 12, 48 says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me himself has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. There is time before his, his second advent. Repent and believe. His mercy is enough. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word. Thank you that as you unfolded this incredible plan throughout scripture, Lord God, you told us what would come to pass. And it has come to pass. And you've told us what is going to come to pass. And because you are a faithful God, we are certain that that's who will come to pass. Lord God, you alone have the words of eternal life. You alone offer us mercy that we don't deserve but, but desperately need. Father, would you work in our hearts as we consider these texts and understand that you have come and that you're coming again. Allow that to inform us, Lord, how we ought to live, that we would honor you as you purify us, as you make us holy, as we await your return. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.